Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning, to be back with you. Uh, I think it's appropriate, and I'm just so uh, grateful for the the elders. I think it's appropriate uh, just for you to hear from me just how thankful I am for these men that serve alongside of me. Um, we, we, do we not have uh, great elders at this church? Uh, and I really do believe that. I don't, I don't mean that um, superficially, but uh, it, it really is such a joy to serve alongside these men. Uh, so many times they have been such a help to me. And uh, I, I think God has blessed our church in such great ways to give us um, such unity among the elders like this. Well, it's good to be back with you. Uh, as you can see from the long text uh, that Marissa read, we're going to be focusing this morning on Genesis 19. So have your finger in Genesis 19. If you haven't been with us, if you're visiting, we are making our way through the book of Genesis And uh, we come to Genesis 19 after, uh, last time I preached, we focused on Genesis 18, where Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom. Many today talk about how the church needs revival. We need an awakening within the church, one in which people will turn to the Lord, Desiring God once more. Hungry to know God even more than they do. And I agree. I agree. However, I think sometimes what many forget is that awakening within the church at large starts where? Starts with repentance. Repentance. But in order for there to be repentance, pastors must preach the wrath of God. They must preach on texts like Genesis 19. Could there be anything more politically incorrect, right, than preaching on the wrath of God? And yet, apart from sinners hearing about the coming judgment, they will not be brought to tears and repentance. And without tears of repentance, no genuine, authentic awakening will occur. Looking back, uh, there was one biography that changed the course of my life. In fact, I didn't even realize this until this week, until I opened it up and had read what I had wrote on the inside cover. And that biography is by Ian Murray. Uh, It's a biography of the 18th century pastor in New England, Jonathan Edwards. And many of you have heard me mention Jonathan Edwards before. Edwards saw something in his own day that few ever see in their lifetime. Edward saw the Lord bring about an awakening in the church in his own day. I don't think it was a coincidence that 
the great awakening of Edward's day was accompanied by perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached in America. You know what that sermon was? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want you to listen. This is just an excerpt from Edward's sermon, which I would encourage you to read, by the way. I want you to listen to just one paragraph and listen to the weightiness in which Edwards considers our sin in light of the holiness of God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. How did the people respond to this sermon? It's reported that many of the people who were there in the church that day, many of them who were otherwise considered thoughtless and vain unbelievers, they were so changed before the sermon was ended that they were bowed down with an awful conviction of their sin and danger. Another observer who was there said that there was such great moaning and crying that Edwards had to stop the sermon. Let me ask you, have you ever been so struck and so convicted of your sin and its hideous nature? Have you ever been so distraught that you deserve God's unending wrath in hell? Have you ever been so undone by the ugliness of your sin before a holy God that you began to weep and weep and weep and you just could not 
stop. People, that is repentance. That is conviction of sin. In our sermon text this morning, we are uncomfortably faced with divine judgment. Perhaps our temptation is to just skip over passages like this, right? But if we're faithful to all of Scripture, to the whole counsel of God, I am convinced that until we understand that God's wrath burns hot against us, and I'm speaking to you this morning, if you are here as an unbeliever, until you understand this, you will never feel a love for Jesus. And you will never understand your great, great need for him as your Savior. With that said, I want you to look at your outline. I give you several points that are going to guide us through this text. Number one, in verses one through three, we see Lot's righteous hospitality. Previously, in Genesis 18, we saw Abraham intercede on behalf of Sodom. And we learn that God is both merciful and just. Remember what happened? Should merely ten righteous persons be found in Sodom? Just ten. God promised that he would not destroy the city. So two angels approach in Genesis 19. They approach Sodom to see whether this city will be spared or destroyed. And when they arrive, what do they see? Well, first of all, they encounter Lot, who is sitting at the gate. So we might ask the question, what role does Lot have in the city by now? Notice Lot is not living near Sodom, which in chapter 13 we were told is a very wicked city. But actually Lot is living right in the midst of this people. Also, the fact that he is sitting at the gates suggests that he is most likely a member of this city, perhaps even a civil leader of some kind. In verse 7, Lot will call the perverse men who approach his house. He will call them brothers. And in verse 14, we also learn that his daughters are going to be married to two men from Sodom. So clearly Lot and his family have been immersed in this city. They have settled down there, even become acquainted with the wickedness that takes place in the city. Now we're going to return to this later on, but it is their acquaintance with Sodom, their comfortableness, we could say, with the wickedness within this city that proves to almost keep them from leaving the city, despite the knowledge that God had given them that he was about to destroy it. But we would be wrong, I think. We we would be wrong to think that Lot is not a righteous man, even if he is living in the midst of an unrighteous people. Look at verses 1 through 3. Lot bows before these two angels. It's a little unclear whether he knows they are angels because they look like men. And he invites them to stay in his house. 
I'm not sure if Lot's hospitality here surpasses that or is even equal with that of Abraham's, which we saw earlier, welcoming these men in. But nonetheless, Lot welcomes these angels of the Lord and he feeds them. He gives them a place to rest. He even seeks their protection and safety. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2 recognizes this much when he says that God rescued righteous Lot who was greatly distressed and tormented by the sinful actions of those around him. Do you feel this distress in Genesis 19? It's there. As Lot welcomes these two men to stay at his house, he not only shows them hospitality, does he? But he seems to be concerned for their safety and protection. He wants to protect them from the wickedness that he knows very well. This may be why, I'm not sure 100%, but this may be why in verse 3, Lot presses the angels so strongly to stay at his house. But regardless, it is clear that Lot is not like those in Sodom, which brings us to our second point. In verses 4 through 11, we see for ourselves the sinfulness of sin in Sodom. It doesn't take long, does it? It doesn't take long for the wickedness of Sodom to reveal itself. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, we read that before these two angels even laid down, the men of Sodom were knocking at the door. Now, there's several key observations I want you to pay attention to. First of all, notice that the men who approach Lot's house are men of all ages. Did you pick up on that? They're both young and old. And then notice also the number of them. It's extensive, isn't it? Look at verse 4. What does it say? All the people to the last man surrounded the house. So it won't do to argue that this group is just an extreme, small minority group within Sodom. No, Sodom itself is at Lot's door. These men certainly represent Sodom as a whole. One other observation. Notice their exceeding wickedness. Notice what their sin consists of. First, they want to engage in homosexual relations with these men, these angels even, who have entered into Lot's house. But also notice, they will do so by force if necessary which means they will force their way in and rape the men in the house if they must. Lot recognizes, he recognizes how wicked the people of this city are. In verse 7, he begs them not to act so wickedly. But his pleas are useless. You see, at this point, Lot does something. It's one of the texts in Scripture that it just shocks you, doesn't it? He does something that is just unthinkable. 
He offers his two virgin daughters to these men outside so that they can have sexual relations with them instead. What are we to make of this? I think we have to conclude that while Lot is a righteous man, he's not like the men of Sodom. Nevertheless, even he, his own thinking to to some degree has been tainted by the type of thinking and perversity that goes on in Sodom. Obviously, Lot is in a terrible position. We can grant him that much. And he feels forced, I think, to choose between two great evils. Siding perhaps with maybe the lesser evil of the two. And while I respect Lot's intent to protect these two visitors, I don't think offering his daughters is an acceptable option. Perhaps a better option would have been to die fighting the men of Sodom rather than allow them to take either the angels or these daughters. These men, however, will not settle for Lot's daughters. Offended at Lot's offer, what do they do? They declare themselves judge. Did you notice that? In verse 9, they say, Get out of our way, Lot. You are not our judge. We will judge for ourselves. And so they press in, trying to break down his door. Just when it seems that these wicked men will have their way, these two angels who look like men... They pull Lot inside and they shut the door. I mean, you can imagine if you were there just how tense this scene must have been, can't you? I mean, they are ready to burst into this house by force. And these angels drag Lot inside and they do so with a sense of urgency. Notice what they do next. They not only shut the door, but in verses 10 through 11, we learn that these angels then strike the men of Sodom with blindness. By the way, when you read your Bible, be careful that you don't read it too quickly. This is just a side note. Because when you do, sometimes you can miss some inferences that are in the text. I think there may be one here. Did you notice? Look at verse 11. Did you notice that in verse 11 the text says that the angels struck the men with blindness so that they wore themselves out groping for the door? What a remarkable statement. I think, though I You could challenge me on this, but I think what is implied here is that even after these men are struck blind, they are still groping for the door. That is how deep their sinful lust is. The only thing that keeps them from succeeding is their lack of sight. 
It's because they cannot see that they, they literally, physically wear themselves out. I think the answer to Abraham's question in Genesis 18 is obvious at this point. There are not even ten righteous people in this entire city. Number three, in verses 12 through 22, we see that Lot lingers in Sodom, but is rescued by God. With the wicked men of Sodom pressing in, the angels tell Lot that he must gather together his family, and he must flee because God is about to destroy the city for their wicked ways. There's no ambiguity in the text to either the sinfulness of the people or to the coming judgment of God. What happens next is tragic, though. This is just tragic. Lot tells his sons-in-law to get up and to get out immediately before the wrath of God comes down. It's coming. It's just a matter of time. But his sons-in-law, they don't listen, do they? They don't listen. They don't even take him seriously. In fact, they think that he's joking or something. Though it's not exactly the same thing, their laughter of unbelief in some sense reminds us, doesn't it, of the laughter of Sarah. When she heard the news that God was going to give her a son, she just laughed in unbelief. Not possible. This laughter of unbelief demonstrates that these sons-in-law They did not take the sin of Sodom seriously, nor the coming wrath of God. If you, and maybe this used to be you, if you have engaged those in the culture, perhaps this is a laugh that you have heard before and are familiar with. Though you warn unbelievers that a day of judgment is coming and those outside of Christ will be punished in hell for eternity, they laugh at you in unbelief. You've got to be kidding, right? How silly, they say. How ridiculous. Look at me. Life is just fine. There's no coming judgment I can live however I please. Thank you very much. What's so tragic about such individuals is that they have mistaken God's patience with tolerance, God's long-suffering with approval of their sin. If you have experienced such laughter, perhaps, then you can relate to how Lot must have felt when he warned his sons-in-law that judgment is coming and now is the time to escape. But it's not just Lot's sons-in-law and their disbelief that's disturbing. It's Lot as well. Again, don't read your Bible too quickly. Do you notice? Did you notice how Lot reacts? 
he is what? Reluctant. He's reluctant. Notice the, notice the urgency in the voice of the angels when they say to Lot, up, get up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now you would think that such an urgent warning would be met by swift reaction, wouldn't you? But it's not. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11.35, Jesus wept. But Genesis 19.16 is a contender for the second shortest verse in the Bible. What does it say? But he lingered. He lingered. Really? His lingering is so bad that the angels have to physically seize him and his family and drag them out of the city. This is, this is not just give me a second. No, this is Lot and his family standing there questioning whether they are really going to leave. That's the type of lingering we are talking about. The type that would take you dragging them by force out of their house and out of the city. That is the type of lingering the text is referring to. And notice, notice what verse 16 says. It says that this was an act of pure mercy. God could have left Lot, who's lingering. He could have left him. But instead, he seizes him and he pushes him out of Sodom. Now, why would Lot linger? Why would he linger? As I mentioned already, though Lot was a righteous man, nevertheless, he had made some very poor decisions. We've seen that already. Having chosen to live in Sodom, he and his family had become comfortable with the sin of Sodom. Perhaps, in some ways, even accepting it, though we're not told in detail. The allure of sin was so strong that when faced with the coming judgment of God, they struggled to run to the hills for safety. I mean, they are the only ones who are being warned, given a way out. They could not let go of Sodom. Sodom had become, whether they realized it or not, Sodom had become part of them, part of their own DNA. And if it were not for God's coercive mercy, go home and put those two words together, coercive mercy, they, have, they would have been destroyed with Sodom. Sadly, 
we receive confirmation that such a love for Sodom was the root of this lingering. Look at verses 18 and verses 26. The angels warned Lot and his family that they were to escape for their lives. Not look back. Don't even stop, they say, lest you too be swept away. In other words, it's not enough just to to leave. You are to run and not look back. But in verse 18, as they're on their way, what does Lot have the boldness to do? Lot begs the angels to let him and his family flee to a little city that would be named Zoar, rather than running to the hills as they were supposed to do. Notice what Lot says. What is his reasoning here? He says in verse 19, I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now what is going on here with Lot? It's a good question. It's hard to know what is going on here with Lot. Some have said Lot wants to go to this little city because he doesn't think he will physically make it in time to the hills. There's one possibility. Perhaps that's true. But it's maybe very unlikely. Because, remember, it was the angel's plan from the beginning all along for Lot and his family to go to the hills so that they would be safe. I think instead, it seems that Lot, he's, he's lingering once more. He's having trouble... He's having a very hard time leaving Sodom and the area that surrounds it. One commentator goes so far to say that Lot lacks faith and he cannot rid himself of his, of his decadent taste for depraved urbanity. I think there may be truth here. Lot is struggling to abandon his beloved city of sin. But such a struggle to part with sin is not limited to Lot. In fact, it characterizes his wife as well. We all know this story. Though Lot and his family are told to flee to the hills, don't look back. God is going to destroy it. He's in the process of destroying it. Lot's wife just can't resist, can she? Isn't it amazing how Genesis 3 just keeps coming up everywhere in the Bible? Don't eat of this tree. Don't look back. His wife had grown all too comfortable with the sin of Sodom. Leaving Sodom, it just seemed impossible. Sure, she would flee to save her life, but she had to look back at the city she loved. Such is the grip of sin. It's easy, isn't it, to look at the lingering of Lot and his wife and to, to recognize their foolishness? 
But are we any better? Ask yourself, am I totally devoted to the Lord? Or am I still attached to certain sins, sins I secretly love? I just just can't. Don't ask me to let go of them. Ask yourself, have I picked up my cross And am I following Jesus without reservation, without any regret? Or am I trying to hold my cross in one hand and in the other hand still have a grip on the sin of this world? Ask yourself, am I becoming too comfortable with this world, serving not one master, but two. Number four. In verses 23 through 29, we see that God destroys Sodom, but he remembers Abraham. Every time we meet God's judgment against sin in Scripture, it's an awful sight to behold. Don't, don't play down the ugliness of sin, and just how awful the wrath of God is. Don't play it down. Like the flood in Noah's day, the destruction of Sodom demonstrates just how seriously a holy God takes sin. He is just, and he will not tolerate wickedness or compromise on his justice. Sodom's sin is great, but greater yet is the wrath of Almighty God. When Lot arrived safely in Zoar, verse 24, look there with me, it says that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Can you even imagine sulfur and fire fall from the sky like rain? Everything and everyone was consumed. God literally burned up Sodom and its sin with it. And so devastating is the fire and the sulfur that when Abraham looked at Sodom and Gomorrah the next morning, verse 28 says, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Have you ever perhaps driven by an industrial city and seen factories in the daytime and seen the enormous smokestacks. If you have, you know what it is like for black smoke to just fill the sky. Or have you ever watched, perhaps if you've seen warfare, a bomb drop, only for it to hit the ground and explode with such magnitude that the blue sky suddenly turns a pitch black. Have you ever seen something like that? When God finished with Sodom and Gomorrah, there was nothing left but smoke 
in the sky. And yet, verse verse 29, it tells us that when God destroyed these cities, in the midst of God's wrath and judgment, God remembered Abraham. Are those not beautiful words? God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. In the midst of God's judgment, we see once more, don't we, God's mercy. Though there were not even ten righteous people in this city. Remember what God said? He said, Abraham, if there are but ten, I will even spare the wicked. (laughs) There's not ten. But God listens, doesn't he? He listened to Abraham's intercessory pleas. And he delivered Lot from the destruction. By rescuing Lot, God demonstrated to Abraham that he is a God who is just and merciful and faithful to his word. Which brings us to our last point. Verses 30 through 38, we see that Sodom, despite God's mercy, rescuing Lot and his family, Sodom is reborn in a cave. The tragedy of Genesis 19 is that it ends on such a terrible note. Though God had destroyed Sodom, the sin of Sodom remained in the hearts of Lot's daughters. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, we learn that Lot is no longer living in the city that he begged the angels to live in. He's no longer living there. Because he was afraid to live there any longer. Why is Lot afraid? Why is it that Lot begged the angels to live there and now he is afraid to death to live there? I think here we have a subtle indication that Zoar was on its way to becoming just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. the people of this city did not learn anything from the fire and the sulfur that God rained down on its neighbors. And so Lot is afraid. He's afraid that Zoar's fate will now be the same. So what does he do? Lot flees. He flees into obscurity and isolation. He lives in a cave separated from the rest of civilization. Notice the the downward spiral, the consequences of Lot's decisions. And in the middle of this scenario, his two daughters say, how will our line be preserved? So the firstborn daughter initiates a very perverse plan, incest. The two daughters get their father drunk two nights in a row, and they sleep with him in order to become pregnant. And Lot is so drunk, he has no idea what has even happened. He is that spiritually dull at this point. And from these two daughters, notice how history works. From these two daughters come Israel's enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites. What are we to make of this twisted ending? Does this 
surprise you? I mean, when you read Genesis 19, did you expect it to just stop, right? It, it, it should have just stopped with God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the end. And then you have this, this story here, and it's, 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 what is going on? This is very odd and very twisted. What do we make of this? I think this ending reveals to us that the, the sin of Sodom, it's reborn. Just like after the flood in Noah's day. Just as Noah's drunkenness gave opportunity for the sin of his son, Ham, so Lot's drunkenness has now given opportunity to the sin of his daughters. And notice, while while Lot's daughters had left Sodom, Sodom had not left them. Perhaps in a sermon like this, we are tempted to think that Sodom was as bad as things could ever be for mankind, right? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus, in Matthew 11, says that if Sodom This is a remarkable statement. If Sodom would have been there in Jesus' day, if they would have heard Jesus and seen his miracles, they would have repented long ago. Jesus says this in his day to rebuke the cities who have rejected him. Cities that... They saw the miracles. They saw them with their own eyes. They refused to repent and to turn for, to Christ for salvation. How telling this is. Apparently those in Jesus' day were even worse than those in Sodom. And is our day really that different? Are you here this morning as an unbeliever, someone outside of Christ, loving your sin, rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you like Lot's sons-in-law, laughing at the news that the judgment of God is coming for you? Brother, sister, Do you really think that God, who is perfectly just and holy, will overlook your wickedness and excuse your sinful thoughts and actions? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, pastor, come on. Don't give me that old fire and brimstone preaching. Relax. Things are just fine. Are they now? Are they? Have you ever considered that things feel fine because you are so blind to the weight of your sin and the fact that Jesus himself has promised that a day of judgment is coming? Do you not think that Men and women just like you were eating and drinking, making merry just before the flood came in Noah's day? Do you not think that there were men and women 
just like you, mocking the thoughts of a God of wrath, engaging in any sin they felt like when suddenly fire and sulfur started raining down from the sky. And do you really think that God, the judge of the universe, will spare you when he would not even spare Sodom if just merely ten righteous people could be found. Are you prepared for the coming of the Son of Man? As Jesus says in Luke 17, do you, not, do you not smell the smoke from the fire of Sodom? Do your nostrils not burn from its sulfur? Is your heart not heavy, knowing that this same fire and sulfur was but for a moment? But the fire and sulfur that awaits you will be for an eternity. Friend, like those two angels, I plead with you. I beg you. Run. Run. Run to Jesus. The only one who can rescue you from the wrath to come. And whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it is the wrath that every one of us deserves. In that famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, what everyone notices is the wrath of God. In some ways, it's the most notorious sermon of all time because it rubs people the wrong way. But what many miss in that sermon, that same sermon, is the tremendous emphasis on the mercy of God. Did you pick that up in the paragraph that I read? Again and again, Edwards asks, why is it that you and I do not fall immediately into hell? Answer, God upholds you and God alone keeps you out of hell. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, Edward says, the earth would not bear you one moment. Sinner, have you... You have no promise today that this is not the last day that God holds you up and tomorrow you meet your judgment. So turn to God. Turn to God, for the God of wrath is also the God who so loved the world that he sent his Son, that whoever believes in him, what? Will not perish, but will receive eternal life. I close this morning with the final words of Edward's sermon. Therefore, 
Let everyone that is out of Christ, is that you? Are you outside of Christ this morning? Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. Let's pray. God, Genesis 19 is a difficult text. It is a text we don't want to hear. It is a text we don't want to read. And it is certainly a text we do not want to have preached. It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of the judgment that I deserve and that everyone here deserves. It reminds us, Lord, that if it were not for your grace, we would this moment fall and spend an eternity condemned. But it's also Genesis 19, Lord, that reminds us of your mercy. How beautiful are those words. God remembered Abraham. Lord, we come to you as children of Abraham because you have promised us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are children of Abraham. Remember us, Lord. Have mercy upon us. And as we stand one day before your judgment, may we be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, how beautiful is your mercy, your love, and your grace that Christ bore the wrath that we deserve. And we are set free. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.